presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. According to Legislative Leadership's calendar, the session's just about halfway over, but plenty of bills are still being introduced, and big topics like property taxes haven't been addressed yet. Let's hear what the governor thinks. I'm Logan Finney, filling in for Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Governor Brad Little addresses reporters' questions about the session so far, and Secretary of State Phil McGrain talks about some of the pending bills that could change the way Idaho votes. Then, Senate Assistant Majority Leader Senator Abby Lee talks about a bill she's sponsoring regarding mistreatment of vulnerable adults. But first, on Friday, Attorney General Raul Labrador announced his office has obtained a new death warrant for Gerald Pizzuto Jr. A copy of the order says the new execution date is scheduled for March 23rd. The state had previously scheduled Pizzuto's execution for December, but canceled it because the Department of Correction could not obtain the necessary chemicals to carry out a lethal injection. On Friday morning, prior to the news from the AG's office, Governor Brad Little answered questions from members of the media. Reporters touched on his Idaho Launch Workforce Training Initiative, restrictions on the use of absentee ballots, and a proposal to bring back the firing squad for executions. Here's some of what he had to say. You know, in North Idaho, obviously, uh, jobs in the timber industry are important. In Southeast Idaho, it's food processing. All over the state, it's healthcare. In Eastern Idaho, it's, it's uh, nuclear engineering. So tailoring workforce development for the local jobs is what's gonna be important. But I, uh, it, this goes back to what I said earlier, Scott. Everybody has complained about the increase in tuition and fees. This is the one biggest action by the state to make post K-12 uh, training available to the vast majority of, of Idaho. Uh, we, you know, we, our goal is 60% to go on. I take issue with the fact that that only means an associate or a bachelor's degree, that we need to have more of those good career technical in that uh, 60%, but we're down to less than 40 right now. So we got a lot, lot of runway to get there and we're gonna have to build capacity. Uh, you know, training in nurses is probably, well, the state board has already said that's their number one priority is what do we do to get the nurses? So I, uh, it, it, this, this addresses the affordability thing. You know, they beat up the college president's state board about increasing fees and tuition as they should. This is gonna fix that problem. You used to have to say, I need an absentee ballot because I'm gonna be gone, or I know I'm gonna have surgery, or fill in the blank. Uh, that was the standard, uh, I don't know how many years ago did they bring it up in the bill, in the hearing, but there, that was the standard. I, we have some precincts in Idaho where it's all absentee voting right now, and in fact, uh, when I was at the governor's conference, I was talking to Governor Gordon in Wyoming. He's got the same proposal over there, but they've got like 20 counties in Wyoming where all the voting's by absentee. They can't get poll workers. So uh, I understand the concern. I think, uh, again, uh, Ruth's interview with 
uh, with uh, Phil McGrain, uh, and I am very thankful that I proposed the election audit uh, two years ago. And we've gone through two audits. I think we've found two votes out of two random audits. I'm a proponent uh, for capital punishment, but we need to do it in the most dignified and humane manner that creates the least amount of stress with my corrections uh, team. As of Friday morning, only five pieces of legislation had made it to Little's desk for his signature. The full press event can be found online at youtube.com slash Idaho Reports. In legislative news, let's get you caught up on the week. Multiple bills have been introduced this year regarding elections and voting, ranging from whether student ID cards should be used as identification at the polls to whether voters should have to give a reason to request an absentee ballot. Our producer Ruth Brown sat down with Secretary of State Phil McGrain on Tuesday to hear about his concerns and what policies he supports as Chief Elections Officer. Student IDs is one example. That bill came out early. I was anticipating it would come out as just part of the greater conversation regarding registration and voter ID at the polls. Um, I am supporting the bill in terms of removing the student IDs, but that's because there's a companion bill that uh, I've been working very closely with Representative Mitchell on to update our registration requirements to specifically specify what forms of ID you can use to register to vote, what forms of proof of address you can use to show what your residence is. And a key component of that bill is including a free ID for anyone who needs one for the purposes of voting. Uh, the standards used to produce student IDs isn't quite the same as it is for all the other forms of identification. Uh, many times it's just a, a printer on a desk in a student office printed by students. Um, and when we think about our driver's license or other things, those requirements are higher. But honestly, the thing that has really influenced my opinion about IDs at the polls, um, I know this has been a national issue for a decade, is just having data and information. I think we need to make informed policy decisions, and this is a key area for that. We introduced electronic poll books over the past two election cycles throughout Idaho. Um, these poll books make it easier for poll workers, easier for voters, but they're also collecting a lot of data and information. And while we all would have assumed that driver's license is the most common form of photo ID, uh, we probably wouldn't have realized just how common it was. In the November 2022 general election, 98.8% of registered voters showed a driver's license. It's overwhelmingly the most common form of ID. On college campuses, driver's license is overwhelmingly the form of ID. And it's surprising, out of the near 600,000 people who voted in November, only 104 used a student identification card. Personally, I would like to see us tighten the security related to the affidavits, and I've made some proposals in terms of uh, how we can do that by adding additional personal identifying information that poll workers could verify uh, when a voter uh, doesn't have an ID with them. Um, right now, though, from talking to legislators, especially in the House, uh, they wanted to start and pursue what uh, we see Representative Alfieri uh, removing that. I don't think there's any way we could remove the personal ID affidavit without those free IDs. I think that's really important. Um, one, Idaho has secure elections. We have a very good system. We ran a very good election in November. Uh, in addition to that, um, security does not have to come at the cost of accessibility. You can have access to voting and have secure elections. And I think too often they're pitted against each other, and I just don't believe that's the case. Um, I've mentioned to the sponsors of this bill that the Secretary's Office will be opposing it. Um, we really think that absentee ballots are an important part of being able to vote in our state, and there's a number of voters who utilize them. 
Um, one of the misconceptions I've heard is that you know, absentee ballot use is exploding and on this significant rise. And while we certainly saw a huge uptick during COVID, especially when the state required people to vote absentee, uh, we've actually seen it normalize. And, you know, there's been a healthy balance in our state of people who vote by mail through absentee ballots, people who vote in person early before an election, and people who choose to vote on election day. I actually think it's one of the areas where Idaho stands out is that we have all these different options. That's not true in many states across the country, including many blue states. All of those election bills started in the House and must make it through the Senate to reach the governor's desk. Ruth's full interview with Secretary McGrain can be found on this week's Idaho Reports podcast. On Thursday, the Senate Education Committee considered a bill that would prohibit transgender K-12 public school students from using facilities that match their gender identity. The bill requires that restrooms, locker rooms, and sleeping quarters be separated by male and female biological sex, though schools would also be required to provide accommodations for students who are unwilling or unable to use multi-occupant facilities. There are uh, lots of uh, different interest groups that I've had, and Caldwell School District is a perfect example of this, where the school um, boards and the school administrators have been caught in a no-win situation. Um, and we, we recognize that, which is one of the reasons why this legislation is here. Um, you know, the bottom line is, um, you know, our schools shouldn't be fighting uh, a culture war in the courts. They have no business there. Okay, they should be teaching our kids. Uh, this legislation really gets out in front of that, lays a baseline for all the schools on how, and, and uh, the majority of our schools, uh, overwhelming majority of our schools in the state already follow this policy, so there will not need to be much adjustment for that. This bill is not only unconstitutional, but it also perpetuates harmful stereotypes and contributes to the stigmatization of marginalization of transgender individuals. Banning transgender youth from the bathroom that aligns with their gender identity not only denies them the right to use facilities that align with their gender, but it also places them at an increased risk of harassment and violence. This bill incorrectly states that trans kids using their preferred restroom leads to cis students experiencing harassment, embarrassment, and other terrible acts like rape. Not only does this perpetuate the trans community as pedophiles, abusers, and totally false characteristics, but legislation, precedent, and rhetoric that is in this bill and other hundreds of bills introduced across this U.S. isolates this isolates the trans community. But the bottom line is, from Lake Pondere to Bear Lake, there are there are district uh, super, there's there are trustees who are confused and don't know what to do. They're looking for the state to act to create a uniform policy, which this does. It makes it crystal clear as to what they have to do to provide them more opportunity and be able to provide some certainty for them so they know they have protection, not only just within their districts, but also legally. The authors are correct that students deserve privacy. That should be real privacy in the form of peak-proof stall doors and individual curtains changing areas. I won't argue as to whether gender dysphoria is caused by a physical or a mental defect. Either way, this bill is a broad part of a broader campaign to deny vulnerable children the life-saving treatment they need. That bill passed on a 6-2 party-line vote and moves on to the full Senate. Senate Assistant Majority Leader Abby Lee joined Ruth Brown on Friday to discuss the session so far. Senator Lee, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. On Tuesday, the Senate passed a bill regarding uh, vulnerable adults and the maltreatment uh, statutes around them. Can you walk me through what the changes uh, will lead to? Yeah, this is really, I think, significant legislation for Idaho. These are statutes that haven't been updated since 1998. 
And so when I first um, came into the Senate about nine years ago and um, was a member of, initially a member of the Health and Welfare Committee, a committee that I've served on since that time, I really saw a disconnect between what the Department of Health and Welfare was doing and the Commission on Aging. And so what, what happened is when we had a vulnerable adult, um, and these are adults often who have Alzheimer's or other uh, dementia-related diseases, we really didn't have the ability to um, provide, I think, the enforcement or the support services that our policy required. So um, folks got together and they really worked hard over this last year. I really want to um, recognize uh, Director Judy Taylor with the Commission on Aging. Um, but essentially what this does is for the first time ever in statute, we can provide support services for caregivers before we get to a place where somebody has had maltreatment. And maltreatment is defined in this new um, piece of legislation really importantly as uh, physical abuse, financial abuse, um, undue duress, um, uh, human trafficking, as horrifying as that is, is um, we had to add that in because there are cases where somebody is having, you know, being forced to work um, or take care of grandchildren and they just simply are not in the mental capacity to do that. So um, I'm really excited about some of the improvements, the definitions, um, but most importantly, it really delineates what the Commission on Aging with Adult Protective Services is, is supposed to do and what the Department of Health and Welfare does. And the department does licensing for facilities and APS, Adult Protection Services, really helps to get into those um, issues and, and, and problems in our community. And it's, um, a way to scaffold things so that people can stay at home. Um, and it's, it, I think it's a monumental piece of legislation that probably um, didn't get a lot of attention and so I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Um, some of the reporting requirements have changed, correct? What else uh, can they do now that perhaps um, they wouldn't have been able to do under prior statute? So again, I think that in addition to the reporting, when we saw a problem, so for example, if you had a neighbor who all of a sudden was outside in cold weather and not dressed appropriately and you really could tell that this elderly person was struggling. Adults are not vulnerable just by nature, whereas children by definition are. But we know that we have vulnerable adults in our community and so instead of calling the police, we can, or even if the police do happen upon somebody uh, or we have a community need, now we can get adult protective services to go into the home and one of the examples that I shared is an elderly man who had untreated um, um, diabetes and you can imagine what that does to somebody if you aren't getting your medication it changes your mental status and when people came to the home they could see that the home really had some serious health and safety concerns um, this individual was able to get to a hospital get dialysis and then come home with a little bit of support services with home care and he is now healthy in his home able to take care of himself and he just needed that little bit of gap in service and without adult protective services in this statute being able to get some prevention pieces in. This is an individual who likely would have gone to a long-term care facility and been removed from his community, his home, and um, certainly didn't need to do that. So I think this really is a way to help people and save money, which I think is um, you know, a great conservative value. Speaking of saving money, <laughs> uh, you sit on the Health and Welfare Committee. Uh, this week there was a presentation regarding uh, Medicaid and the efforts to address some enrollees who may no longer be eligible. Uh, can you walk me through some of your concerns around that? Um, you voiced um, quite a few to the, the administrator of welfare. 
Yeah, I, I did. Thank you for the opportunity to clarify maybe some of those those comments. We we know that during the pandemic, the federal government was pretty restrictive on um, not allowing us to do income uh, verification and, and disenroll anyone who potentially is no longer eligible. And now that that's over, um, we have the ability to really look at who is eligible and who should be receiving these benefits. And um, But the federal government has also put some pretty significant restrictions. They're gonna make a slow roll this disenrollment. And so we have about 150,000 people who may be not um, technically eligible for Medicaid. And so my position really is, in order to preserve the fidelity of what Medicaid is in our state, we have to ensure that only those who are eligible are receiving those services. And um, I really want the department to be able to look at moving people off. Um, and moving people off means moving them to your Health Idaho or other plans that, um, that may be more appropriate. We know that we struggle with um, funding Medicaid. And so in order to ensure that it really is for the, the most um, at need, we've got to make sure that we keep those um, parameters in place. And of course, the reason that the state was unable temporarily to remove people from Medicaid was because of the uh, COVID emergency. Congress has since changed to that. I believe CMS is asking for one ninth, uh, one ninth of renewals a month. Um, and we have 100, about 150,000 uh, employee, or excuse me, enrollees. Um, is, is your concern that um, we need to move the process faster, yeah, I, I suppose. do, I think we need to move it faster. And of course, um, I also appreciate that the federal government is not incentivizing that, and so they were putting restrictions. In fact, if we go faster, then yeah. they have told us that they would fine us and do some other things. And and um, we looked at, you know, how do we create capacity? We have um, a lot of employees who have a regular job, and now they're having to do these other pieces. And so one of the things that I've offered um, the federal government is even so restrictive that we can't have contractors. They're, they won't allow us to hire additional people to do this exact process. Right. But nothing says that we can't hire additional individuals to do the regular eligibility and free up our current employees to take a look at this. And, and again, I think it really is about fidelity for the program and ensuring that um, our policy of taking um, the steps needed to move people off who are not eligible um, will reduce costs and it will also preserve the function of what Medicaid was intended in Idaho. Do you believe health and welfare has been receptive to the legislature's concerns? I think they're trying within the parameters of what, what how they're reading the guidance and so um, it is certainly our role to push a little bit and to um, come up with some other creative solutions and I think um, uh, they're I think they're trying. We may have a little bit of a disagreement on, on how fast this should go. Okay. Uh, speaking of disagreements, <laughs> the House had several notable bills that will soon come before the Senate. Let's start with, um, there's a House bill that passed um, that prohibits uh, gender-affirming care to transgender children that has not yet come to the Senate. Uh, what do you anticipate? So uh, that bill has been referred to Judiciary and Rules. Um, last year it was referred to State Affairs. And so I think that's a little bit of a difference and um, I, I think that this bill gets a hearing. Uh, last year the Senate didn't respond um, 
favorably, at least to having a hearing. Um, but we have a lot of new members and we have a lot of, uh, I think, new interest for uh, the issue. So I think, I think this bill gets a hearing. What are your interests? So my interests are really um, in preserving the rights of parents to make fundamental decisions for their children. Um, I am absolutely opposed to gender reassignment surgery for children under 18, and I think those surgical pieces we all can agree on. Um, but I've met with many families, and these are heartbreaking, scary times for these families, and I think it's one that we would do well to really make sure that we are crafting the right policy. We have stood strong with allowing our parents to make decisions for their children, I think this gets caught up in a lot of, of other issues, but I can remember um, tearfully supporting parents' rights to um, make medical decisions based on their religious beliefs, their fundamental beliefs. And, and so I, I think that we would do well to, to pause and make sure that we are doing the right thing and um, not just creating a headline for um, behaviors that maybe people um, uh, are assigning other, um, I think, motives too. And, and again, when I talk to families who have struggled with these issues, and these are families who are in Idaho, who when their child comes to them and says, I'm struggling, um, they are scared. And I, um, I wonder how many of these families want necessarily the government to come into their living room and, and, just, and make these decisions. I've talked to doctors and, um, and many people now, again, I think we all agree that um, you know surgery for dysphoria in any way for um, children under 18. Again, I, one of the examples I've given is um, if we had a, a, a 14 or 15 year old who had an eating disorder, that child would not get to have a gastric bypass, right? And so we really want to make sure that we are, um, you know talking about these issues, but ensuring that our parents are able to work with medical providers and psychologists and, um, and really grappling with these hard issues. Sure, and the bill, um, just for folks that may not know, the bill is about more than just surgery. It would also prohibit the use of cross-sex hormones, puberty blockers, uh, and in committee in the House, there was um, some medical associations that, um, that opposed that, local Idaho physicians that explain that you know they're not seeing a lot of surgery or if any surgery in juveniles but they do use some of these um, hormone blockers um, yeah. for various medical reasons and that's really the challenge of um, you know being a legislator I'm not a physician but sometimes I play one in the legislature and I have to make these decisions and so I really think that you're gonna see um, in the Senate a really thoughtful um, hearing if if it gets to a hearing uh, Senator Lakey is a, a phenomenal chairman who I think is um, going to make sure that, that all sides are represented. And so um, I would just encourage people to participate in the process and, um, and, and we really are setting policy and so I'm hopeful that, that we'll have some, some robust discussions. I've, I've heard from people on, on both sides and these are deeply held beliefs. And so these aren't really issues where you can nuance. Um, you, um, these, are, these are tough issues, much like when we discuss guns when we discuss abortion, I mean, these are deeply held issues. I wanna to touch on one more uh, topic with the last of our, we have about a few minutes left. There was a House bill uh, that did pass uh, that would change the oversight of the Office of Performance Evaluations. Um, the oversight is currently um, 
held by JLOC, um, which is a bipartisan committee. It would change to uh, the Legislative Council, which is also bipartisan, but it is uh, majority-led. Um, what are your thoughts on um, this bill that will soon come before the Senate? Well, if it gets a hearing, I, I, I can't predict that. Yeah, I can't predict that either, but um, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Office of Performance Evaluation, and I've uh, made a number of requests um, for some pretty significant reports that have helped change policy, specifically with foster care and child welfare. Uh, we use those as data, as information to really change and transform that system. So I'm grateful um, for those reports and I've been the beneficiary of that. So my preference is um, let's keep it as it is. Um, my ultimate goal though is I want to preserve the Office of Performance Evaluation. And so I can also appreciate, um, right now I think it works um, to have that balance on JLOC. The Legislative Oversight Committee is also a fantastic committee and um, the minority is also represented on that committee. Certainly not an equal, but um, probably more of a majority if you, than if you take the entire legislature together. Sure. So I think um, proponents of the bill would argue that um, we are a Republican majority state. So should the oversight of OPE be um, oversight from a committee that is Republican led. Uh, what's your take on that? So I can see that. Um, sure. The majority uh, it likes to be the majority. I think I've already been on the record a few years ago saying we really need to get the, the politics as much out, the partisanship as much out of these review things so that these are not punitive reports, um, that they really are informational reports. And so I think I'm already on the record as, as wanting JLOC to stay the way that it is. But ultimately, um, if it's the will of, of the Senate, I will be um, a champion of just making sure that OPA, OPE um, exists as its own independent group rather than being housed under some other areas as, as has been proposed. Um, outside of individuals who are maybe working in the press corps, lobbyists and legislators, I think they don't know what OPE is. They don't always read the reports. Um, you offered a great example, some of the work they did on the foster care. We have a couple minutes left. Can you give me some examples of what you learned from the foster care report? Yeah, you know, we, we learned a lot. We learned that we had a statute that requires our children to have representation in these cases. So a child who's in a child protection case, the parents have, have an attorney, and our, our system requires that these children have guardian ad litems, which is just a phenomenal program. We should talk about that sometime. <laughs> but, but these are really the advocate and the voice for the child, and we were able to kind of look through this systems review and see where we had gaps, where children were actually not being represented. And so it was not only not following the statute, but it was an, an opportunity to look and say, how do we fix this? And um, you know, in, in years later, our courts have actually picked this up, and now they have a guardian ad litem committee, and I, I um, actually am privileged to serve on that. And we're starting to look at a whole systems um, look at guardian ad litems. The other piece that we really found is that this was such a closed um, system that there wasn't transparency, and so just bringing a little bit of sunshine to these. Um, most vulnerable children's cases, I think has systemically and systematically improved uh, the culture of the department um, and also um, impacts for these children and these foster families. 
All right. Well, Idaho Reports will keep an eye on whether it gets a hearing in the Senate, but I do appreciate your time, Senator Lee. Thank you. We have much more coverage online of the legislation making its way through the State House. You'll find it all on our website at idahoptv.org slash idahoreports. And while you're there, sign up for our weekly newsletter to get Wednesday and Friday morning news roundups delivered right in your inbox. Thanks so much for watching, and we'll see you next week. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.